Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. You're going to hear from a Hamilton nurse who was so burned out from the pandemic, she lost empathy for her patients. More amazing research from McMaster University. More Canadians plan to watch the Super Bowl this year compared to last. What are you eating on Super Sunday? I have details of an amusing study on swallowing small objects. And Chris Gormley of the Trues tells us about his new song. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There's a nurse who works at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton who's going to join us here in a couple of seconds who uh, was so burned out by the stress and the pressure that the COVID-19 pandemic has put on the healthcare system that she thought, I got to do something. And that something was transferring out of the intensive care department at St. Joe's to do something else. Rachel Janice is her name, a nurse at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rachel, good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic. Tell us about your story. Um, I would say I've been a nurse for 21 years. Um, the last 11, I've been in uh, the ICU at St. Joe's. Um, and in terms of like the nursing shortage that we're having now, it's it's something that's been we've been watching evolve slowly. The nurses at the bedside have known that it's been coming for years. So uh, we've been kind of slowly watching staffing become more and more of an issue. Um, When the pandemic hit, uh, that's when things, you know, really started to become critical. We were pulling staff and redeploying them to ICU to help support us, leaving other floors short. But there wasn't the staff to, to go and support the floors that we were taking staff from. A lot of us were picking up an excessive amount of overtime during the pandemic. Uh, it was the kind of camaraderie of the nurses there that got us through. Um, so you picked up a lot of extra shifts, supporting your coworkers, knowing that they were going to be supporting you on on shifts when you were short. But after two years of that, um, you know, the, the thing about the pandemic is we knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel eventually. So we kind of got through and powered through that. But in the aftermath of COVID-19, uh, like those big surges, um, everyone was just completely spent um, nurses started leaving, leaving things more short, which then overworked the nurses that were left, which caused more people to burn out and leave. Um, and then it started this uh, giant exodus in not only our department, but I think hospital-wide, province-wide probably, um, where nurses had to leave, change to different departments, um, in not just from ICU, but I mean, emergency room the medicine floors, surgical floors, nurses are leaving to find uh, jobs with better hours, better pay, um, you know, proper staffing. So the pandemic hits in 2020. By 2022, you're so burned out, you're thinking, I, I got to get out of this department, this intensive care department, because I am spent. I'm on empty. How long had you been contemplating that decision? Or was there a breaking point that you thought, all right, here's the sign telling me I got to do something else? You know, all, all of us felt the strain of it. Um, you know, some people were already off at that point, um, had gone off on, on stress leaves or, or left at the department uh, by 2022. Uh, for me personally, it just started, like patients were, were sicker and the staffing was starting to get bare bones. And not that that was anyone's fault in particular, just as the nature of the beast with people leaving. Um, you couldn't replace people's sta- uh, staff fast enough but what I really found the part that scared me when I knew I had to leave was I was losing my empathy and as someone who's prided themselves on you know helping people that's 
you know, that the role of a nurse is to kind of ease suffering and to get to a point where you weren't caring about that anymore. It sort of scared me because it's ingrained in me. It's a part of who I am as a person, like as part of my personality. And to realize that, you know, I'd be doing the best job that I could and taking care of this patient to the absolute best of my ability. But was I truly invested in their recovery or not? I started losing that. And I knew that, you know, something had to give because it was changing me as a person. And I didn't like what I was seeing. Was that lost empathy for COVID patients? Uh, it, it was just across the board. Um, and a lot of nurses, doctors, RTs, like a lot of staff, um, you could see that happening to a lot of them. Um, when they talk about burnout, it's not just exhaustion and anxiety and, and sleepless nights. Um, parts of your personalities just start to wear down and you know you you can see the good nurses and and great people and you can just see the light slowly going out in their eyes and that's you know it's it becomes a a staff full of hollow people um trying their best to still put on a good face and you know be there for those patients and families because you know at the end of the day no matter how bad of a day i'm having at work those patients and families are potentially having the worst day of their life. We, so we only got about thirty seconds, Rachel. What, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing now? And how are you doing now? I'm working in an outpatient department at St. Joe's, um, and uh, the the stress it's good. Uh, the hours are great, um, and there's no emotional baggage at the end of the day. So I'm able to go in and do my job. And the patients come in, have their procedure, go home, have a meaningful existence. And I needed those kind of wins in my. Uh, day-to-day work. Well, it sounds like you certainly deserve it after two years of uh, going full bore and uh, and finding yourself on empty. It's nice that you found a place where you can get that empathy back, continue to help people and make a huge difference in our community. And I thank you for all that you've done and wish you the best down the road. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's Rachel Janice, a nurse at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. An amazing story. Should mention that Hamilton Health Sciences uh, still has hundreds of unfilled nursing jobs at local hospitals. So this burnout situation is still very much a factor here in the local healthcare community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. More amazing work is being done out of McMaster University, a Mac-led study shows that just one injection of an antiviral drug given to a COVID-19 patient early on in their infection greatly reduces their risk of hospitalization. Dr. Gilmar Reese is the study author, associate professor of the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at Mac, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Reese, good morning. How are you? Uh, Good morning. How, How did this research study begin? What was the idea behind launching it? Well, the idea was uh, built up during early pandemic when we realized that this virus could be a, a terrible virus for the overall world population. So as I am based in Brazil, we designed a trial that to address uh, treatments for the early phase of COVID-19. And then my friends from McMaster joined us in this very successful program and later on, other universities as well. So we have heard in, for the last number of weeks and months, uh, Paxlovid with uh, with its treatment of uh, fighting this virus. This is much different, though. Explain how this would work. Well, this drug that we just studied and published on New England Journal of Medicine is a drug 
actually is a molecule that our body produces itself uh, to fight against any viral disease. So if we have a viral illness, the first defense will be production of interferon. And lambda interferon, it's a very particular and specific interferon that works mainly in the respiratory tract and the intestinal tract as well. Dr. Gil Maurice is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Reese is the study author, associate professor of the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University, talking about this new antiviral drug given to COVID-19 patients early on in their infection, which greatly reduces their risk of hospitalization. How, how great of a reduction did you see? Well, uh, we studied this drug in almost 2,000 participants with uh, flu-like symptoms, and we realized on the final results that this drug significantly reduces the major uh, events such as hospitalizations and death. And that was pretty uh, a surprise to us. Actually, we are expecting a nice result, but not too much as we found in this trial especially for patients on the first three, four days in their illness. And the results was even better. There's been a lot of talk, and you've probably heard it, uh, many others have, about side effects for vaccines, for shots. Did you find any? Well, I mean, interferon lambda is very specific. It's different from other interferons that uh, produces a lot of uh, adverse events. But lambda, uh, for some reason, uh, as I'm saying, he's a very specific for respiratory tract. The symptoms are pretty smooth, you know, it's pretty much like the flu-like symptoms. We did not find any differences from the placebo group and on the lambda group regarding adverse events. So was the effectiveness of this antiviral drug, was it something that you expected? Is this a big surprise at how effective it is? Well, the hypothesis is very convincing. As I said, uh, we produce this lambda to fight against any viral disease. So, and for some reason, the coronavirus just uh, uh, impairs the production of uh, defenses that depends upon the interferon system. And what we do, we've done is providing the interferon to the patients, and then we. Uh, kind of fixed their immunoinflammatory uh, system to adequately uh, fight against the coronavirus illness. Talking about a McMaster University-led study that shows just one injection of this antiviral drug given to a COVID-19 patient early in their infection greatly reduces the risk of hospitalization by 90%. Uh, Dr. Gil Maurice is the study author, associate professor of the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence, and Impact at McMaster. Could this be tried out for other illnesses like the flu, for example? Yes, as lambda is part of our body defense, uh, uh, the hypothesis is very appealing to use in other viral illness, but we need to test this uh, before, uh, uh, before, I mean, start using this, for example, in influenza and syncytial respiratory virus in other viral illness. So you have to conduct more human trials before this eventually goes out on the market? Yeah, we hopefully we are planning to conduct other trials in other illness, other viral illness uh, besides COVID-19. And uh, if we've done so, hopefully we have the results uh, pretty soon. Uh, so the timeline for going to market maybe next year. Is that too soon? 
Well, I mean, uh, it depends on the, uh, the, the pharma industry uh, and also the regulators. What we've done is study the drug and showing that this very appealing hypothesis was proven in a very well-designed, large, randomized, controlled clinical trial. It's very exciting, Dr. Reese. Thanks for your time today and good luck with this. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. That is Dr. Gil Maurice, the study author, associate professor of the Department of Health, Research Methods, Evidence, and Impact at McMaster University. Again, this study, this antiviral drug given to a COVID-19 patient early on in their infection, saw about a 90% reduction in hospitalization and uh, hospital admission, admissions slashed in half for those were treated within a week. So within a week, even then. You're you're not uh, realizing those severe health outcomes. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting new survey out from TimeToPlay.com, and it is uh, targeting how many Canadians plan to watch the Super Bowl this Sunday, and what exactly are they going to be watching it for? Rhiannon O'Donoghue is a writer and PR digital strategist with Time to Play and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rhiannon, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great. So what did you find in your survey? Yeah, so I mean, I found that over half of Canadians plan to watch the Super Bowl this year, um, which is more than last year. So I think there could be a record-breaking number this year. Um, and they're most looking forward to the halftime show, which is no surprise because Rihanna is coming back to the music <laughs> industry. So I think a lot of people are excited about that for sure. Yeah, 52.6% of Canadians, uh, according to the survey, plan to watch the Super Bowl. That's above the 45 percentage mark from last year. For the halftime yeah. show, though, the 31.6% of respondents most looking forward to the halftime show. The the big surprise to me, that's really not a surprise, but the big surprise to me was the 29.3% who are most concerned or most looking forward to seeing the social scene. That's even more than the game itself. Was that a surprise for you? Uh, no, because I'm also American as well. So I know that it's a big reason to party. Um, so I think maybe it's because it's post-COVID times as well. People just want to get together and just have a game playing in the background as well. That is a good point. 16.6% are looking forward most to the game, 11.2% the commercials, 9.8% the food, of course, and 1.5% looking forward to the betting. Uh, you also looked at how long people actually plan to watch the game. What did you find there? Yeah, so... I mean, 9.7% plan to just watch the first quarter, 6.2% plan to watch uh, the second quarter. Um, a good chunk plan to watch until the halftime show is over, which is at 39.2%. Then 2.9% plan to watch to the end of quarter three, but the majority of them, 42%, plan to watch the entire game which surprised me the most. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too surprised with the end of the third quarter, 2.9%, because if you've, <laughs> if you've stayed up to watch the end of the third quarter, you might as well figure out who's going to win the game, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rhiannon O'Donoghue is a writer and PR digital strategist with TimeToPlay.com, has come out with a survey that shows 52% of Canadians plan to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. That's more than the 45% that watched the game last year. Where are Canadians going to be watching the big game? Um, so most of them are going to be watching at home, um, whether it's at a cable or a streaming service. Um, the majority chose 
cable um, at 52.6% and 38% are watching through streaming services. Um, but I mean, you can watch it through satellite or other platforms as well, too. Mm-hmm. 2% to the bar, 6% say they're not going to watch. And that's that, that's an understandable figure. Not everyone is a big football fan. All right, Rihanna, the big question is, who's going to win on Sunday? Who are you picking? I don't know. I haven't really decided yet. I think that's going to be a Sunday decision for me. <laughs> it, is, it is a toss-up game, that is for sure. We appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing the details of this uh, study, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. That is uh, Rhiannon O'Donohue, writer and PR digital strategist, timetoplay.com. They do some uh, pretty interesting surveys now and then. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Super Bowl comes on Sunday, and a major part of it, of any Super Bowl party, is the food, of course. The question I've been asking myself <laughs> reluctantly is, Can I eat healthy during the game? Should I even try? Is this a lost cause? Make sure you stay away from any food that looks or smells a little suspect, though. I know that. You don't want to end up in the bathroom all game long. What did we eat? Things are gone. What are you doing? It's coming out of me like lava. You don't want to be in that situation, that is for sure. Shannon Crocker is a registered dietitian and nutritionist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me this morning. The uh, Chicken Farmers of Canada, you shared with uh, this with me earlier this morning, uh, says Canadians are expected to devour 82 million chicken wings <laughs> while watching the Super Bowl. Aside from wings and things like pizza and nachos, what other food can be a big hit on Super Sunday? Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, you said it right off the top. Snacks are the number one thing that people are looking forward to. Well, maybe not the number one thing, but the number one thing I'm looking forward to at Super Bowl is the snacks. And people want things that they can grab during commercials that don't interfere with the game. You know, like we're talking about easy to grab things, things you can eat with your fingers. So, you know, I always see sliders and sandwiches and wraps and those sorts of things. Um, And I asked actually on social media and uh, the number one winner was nachos. I, I don't know about you, but I see nachos at every Super Bowl party that I go to. Yeah, so and it's probably I think because, nachos are a clear winner. Yeah, probably because they're so easy to make. Exactly. They're easy to make. They're easy to eat. You can put them on your plate and, and you don't have to have a fork. I think that's the big thing, right? People don't want it to eat, sit down and hold, you know, a plate on their lap while they're watching the game. They just want things that they can eat with their fingers. That's a great point. So we know that food prices at the grocery stores have gone up considerably uh, since even the last Super Bowl. What are some affordable food options for Super Bowl party hosts? Yeah, so definitely make at home items, Rick, will be the way to go. So skip those pre-made veggie trays or cheese trays or the dips that you can get in the shape of a football at the grocery store. They're, they're going to cost you a lot of money. It's going to hit you hard in the wallet. So I like things like um, potato skins. You know, potato skins are budget friendly. They're also nutritious and, and potato skins are really easy to make and you can put out a whole bunch of toppings people can um, put on as well. Um, I like things like chili, you know, you can always add lots of beans and canned tomatoes to extend it to make your chili go farther. Um, and if you do like things like meatballs, you know, you can always do things like add in breadcrumbs and chopped mushrooms and grated onion, and that helps to extend that as well. So look for ways to kind of 
extend your, you know, your favorite foods. We're talking about Super Bowl party food with Shannon Crocker, registered dietitian and nutritionist. We know that the big game is Sunday between the Eagles and the Chiefs, and a big part of it is the food. You mentioned dips, and as we know, dips are certainly a fan favorite, but as Seinfeld taught us years ago, no double <laughs> dipping. Did you just double dip that shit? Excuse me? You double dipped the chip. Double dipped? What, what, what are you talking about? You dipped the chip. You took a bite. And you dipped again. <laughs> so that's like putting your whole mouth right in the dip. <laughs> From now on, when you take a chip, just take one dip and end it. Shannon, should dips be a part <laughs> of our Super Bowl party in this day and age? Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, dips are all kinds are really popular for Super Bowl for sure. And I think, you know, for general food safety, you really want to avoid the double dippers out there. Um, it is, <laughs> yes. I, I actually looked this up because I was curious about it. So there is a study, you know, there's been studies done. Um, one was done in 2009 and it, it definitely bacteria, like if you are double dipping bacteria from your mouth can go into the dip depending on the dip, etc. So I think we definitely want to avoid that double dipping uh, for the bacteria. Plus, it's just really icky. So I always tell people, you know, if you're going to put out a dip, put a spoon in it so that people can spoon the food onto the, the plate. So you're going to avoid those double dippers like George. There was a study uh, conducted uh, via info from Google Trends, and it showed at least in the states, 13 states, by far and away the most, preferred buffalo chicken dip as the most searched recipe. Do you have a favorite dip? Oh, you know what? I, I've seen that dip at Super Bowls a lot. I actually have a fabulous lemony jalapeno dip made with white beans on my website. Uh, you can find that at shannoncrocker.ca. And it's it's got really like lots of flavor, lots of tang, and it's made with white beans. So not only is it affordable, but it's going to be nutritious. That's That's one of my favorite savory dips. And then I have a favorite sweet dip, which is my peanut butter um, dark chocolate yogurt dip for fruit. It's absolutely fabulous. So I'm a big fan of dip as well. Um, definitely, though, you want to have that spoon beside your dip. Absolutely. Shannon Crocker is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, registered dietitian, nutritionist. Great recipes online at shannoncrocker.ca. We know that some Super Bowl party hosts just go gangbusters and have so much food that they have so much leftovers. What should we be doing with these Super Bowl party Party leftovers. Oh yeah, so this is this is actually a problem I think with Super Bowl because people do want to you know put out a really big spread, but the thing is, with with um, food that's left out for more than two hours, it's no longer considered safe to eat. So you know the Super Bowl party starts before six thirty and then it goes on forever. And so um, what I recommend is that if, you know, your food's been out for more than two hours, and you know, let's face it, there's going to be a lot of people potentially touching it. At the end of the day, like that, that food is done. Unfortunately, you have to throw that out. So I always suggest to people like only put out what you need at that moment and then replenish it as people eat it so that you don't waste that food um, because wasted food is wasted money for you, which is no good. And also that's not great for the planet. So, you know, definitely the two hour window is is what, what we want to look at. You don't keep, you know, uh, foods that have been out especially foods that have been hot and then cooled for longer than two hours. Great tips from Shannon Crocker, registered dietitian and nutritionist. You can find out even more great recipes on our website, shannoncrocker.ca. Shannon, thanks for the time. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Thanks so much, Rick. You too. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking about swallowing foreign objects and what happens in the body when you do so. 
And why am I talking about this of all topics on the show? Well, there are, and I didn't know this until I was doing some research the other day, upwards of 128,000 children in America go to the emergency room after they've swallowed a foreign object. And so there was a doctor in Melbourne, Australia, an ER doc by the name of Dr. Andy Tag, who said that, you know what, a lot of the kids that come into the ER don't really have to be here because the objects they have ingested aren't exactly going to, well, kill them or make them seriously ill. And so what they found was, you know what, we're going to study this particular area and focus on small plastic objects and toy parts, specifically Legos, because the number one item for an object that kids swallow are coins. And through this research, which has been published in the Journal of Pediatrics and Children's Health, coins are not bad. You can ingest a coin. You will not get seriously ill. It, it might be a little uncomfortable um, towards the end, but y- y- you will live. And so Dr. Tag said, uh, you know what, we have to study this. And apparently he had also known that he had done this himself as a child. He, he swallowed as a kid a small pl- plastic object, a, uh, a toy part of some sort, while pr- trying to uh, um, delatch or deconnect a couple of Lego pieces. And one of them went down the hatch, so to speak, and, well, came out the other hatch. So he, <laughs> he enrolled five other doctors in this study. And how they participated in this is that each of these six doctors swallowed a Lego piece to study how safe it is for kids that do it by accident. So they, they decided on the head, the small yellow head of a Lego guy or girl. Uh, they popped it in their mouth. They poured it down the hatch with a, with a glass of water, just like you would with a pill. And, uh, and down it went. And so, uh, you know, they waited, and some of them waited a a little longer than others. But in the end, it took an average time of 1.71 days for the doctors to find their Lego heads in their stool. Yes, they actually, every time they went to the bathroom, dissected their poop to find out, is the Lego head in there? And uh, the poor doctors that had to do this for multiple days, I really feel for. The ones that did it for a day or less, uh, congratulations. <laughs> I guess your digestive system is working very, very well. One doctor, in fact, never did find his Lego head. So there's one of two possibilities. Number one, that doctor either missed it entirely, or number two... That Lego head is still inside his body some way, somehow. <laughs> Maybe he's got, uh, you know, super acid in his stomach that that's it. The Lego head went in and it's, it never came out. It did not survive uh, the journey, so to speak. Here's the important thing. None of the participants, none of these six doctors suffered any complications. They were okay. There wasn't even really any discomfort. You, you think of a Lego head, it's, it's really tiny. It's, it's really millimeters, probably the size of your pinky fingernail. And so they decided that, it, you know what, these small toys, yes, it might be concerning to parents, but if your child ingests one, you don't need to go to the ER. Just wait a day, maybe two, maybe three, and it'll eventually come out. The other message from the docs is don't 
check your kid's stool. You don't have to. It's going to come out. There's no reason to panic. It is fine. Uh, Here's two other things of note. Number one, button batteries. That's something you do not want your young child to swallow because it can burn the esophagus. And it may be fatal and require immediate urgent removal. Other things you definitely want to go to the hospital for is if your child swallows a magnet, anything that is sharp, of course, or something the size of a quarter or larger because, well, you're talking about a a bigger foreign object. And, of course, if your child is experiencing any kind of stomach pain after swallowing something, certainly head to the hospital immediately. But here's the other part, too, about this study. And this is the hilarious part to me, is that there are two ways that they measured uh, how this Lego head was traveling through the body. Number one was the... Found and retrieved time score. Yes, the fart score. The other was the stool hardness and transit score. Ladies and gentlemen, the shat score. This is absolutely, fundamentally, 100% real measurements that these physicians used. The fart score and the shat score. The best part about it is that none of the doctors got hurt. There's one doctor, Dr. Henry Goldstein, I'm not sure why, but he keeps his Lego head, again, that passed through his body, on his hospital lanyard. Wow. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It really feels great when you are hearing a song like this. It's called Good Morning. It dropped at midnight. And it's by Chris Gormley, the drummer of The Trues. And, and here's the back... Well, you know what? I was going to say, here's the backstory. Let's allow him to tell the backstory. Chris Gormley joins us now on GMH on 900 CHML. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So what is the backstory on this song? How did this come about? The backstory, it's it's a little long-winded, so I'll, I'll summarize it quickly. Um, I started, during COVID, I started a little side project called The Whiskey Hunter, where I was, um, you know, getting inspired by my love of whiskey and writing whiskey-inspired music. And, uh, I mean, fast forward two and a half years, and I have, like, a whole collection of of whiskey-inspired songs out there. And that's great. That's the good news. The bad news is my my two-and-a-half-year-old twins are my two biggest fans, and they're they're regularly going to daycare singing my songs, <laughs> which, are, which are all full with lyrics like, Lord, I need a bourbon, tell me what you're drinking, raise a glass, all this kind of uh, drinking stuff, which is not really good for two-year-olds. So I just wanted to do something a little bit different and kind of inspired by uh, the types of mornings you can imagine me and my wife have with with two-year-old twins, um, you know, just dealing with getting them up in the morning and getting everyone out to work and getting kids to daycare we started i started going into their rooms in the morning singing to them just to keep them you know if the kids wake up on the right side of the bed you can have a a great day if they wake up on the wrong side it's not a great day so absolutely i'd go in the morning i'd be singing good morning good morning which transpired to the rest of the course which transpired to me taking it to uh the studio i go to in hamilton with my my partner carl jennings and saying hey i got this great idea Let's let's kind of 
flush it out. And now the song is Good Morning and it's finally out there. It's a phenomenal song and it really, it's uplifting and yeah, it gets you ready for the day. I got to ask you though, how did you find out that your two and a half year old twins were singing this at daycare? Did they come home one day and say, hey, we're singing this? Or did one of the, did one of the instructors or teachers or healthcare Abs- providers call yeah. you to say, hey, something's going on here? Absolutely. Driving in the car in the morning, I I was fine with them screaming out the lyrics in the car. I was like, that's great. (laughs) Um, But then a couple nights when I was doing the pickups, one of the teachers was like, hey, um, your son keeps on singing about bourbon and your daughter keeps on singing, hey, ho, raise a glass, hey, ho. What's she talking about? And I was like, oh, those are my songs. So, I mean, it's, I think it's kind of cute, but at the same time, my wife was kind of like, maybe you should try doing a song that's not about whiskey. So that's kind of why I did this, little, this, this, this new venture. What is your favorite part of constructing this song? Is it because it has a connection to your kids and you had to morph it into something bright and cheerful and, and non-bourbon related? Um, yeah, like, I mean, it's the same with all, even the whiskey songs. Like when I, when I, when I write a song and, and then kind of follow through with it and record a song and put it out there, I just, I, I got to re- really be invested, um, kind of with my heart. You know what I mean? I'm not just, this is a side project. So I'm not, I'm not just doing it. Like I want to get these songs out there and I want to, I want to get a hit and maybe get it on the radio. I just want to do stuff that I love. And whether it was the whiskey ones or this kind of non whiskey song, I, I just, I just felt good about it. And, and I was singing it to my kids, like in the early, early stages. And, and, um, you know, they just regurgitate things back to you and they were singing it back to me and smiling in the morning. And that was enough for me to say, no, this is a good idea. I've got to, I've got to see it through. And then, yeah, the whole process, just when you're writing a song that's hopeful and positive and, and you think is going to bring, um, good to people, it just makes that whole recording process not even feel like work. It just feels like this is, this is what I should be doing. This is a nice thing. 100%. Chris Gormley is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We have another minute with the drummer from The Trues. Speaking of which, now that the worst of the pandemic is over, what are you up to? What are The Trues up to? Well, we, we actually just got back from uh, an American tour. We just got back on Monday. Um, yeah, finally things seem to be, I mean, last summer also, things are kind of back to normal for us, which is which is great. We're touring um, we had a new record out. We're currently working on putting on another record out and, and now we're just booking up for spring and summer and it's going to be a busy spring and summer. So that's all positive. And it feels like, I mean, the city, we, we, the cities we played in, in America and across Canada, people are ready to be back at concerts and being in big groups of people and celebrating music and, and life. And so it's, it's a, a good feeling overall. I feel. I think a lot of people are ready to hear a song like this. Congratulations on putting it together. It sounds fantastic. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Rick. Chris Gormley is the drummer of The Trues. Again, the song is called Good Morning. You'll you'll hear it on this show, um, I guess, forever and ever. It's a great anthem that we can adopt here. And, of course, you can find it on YouTube, Spotify, wherever to get your favorite music. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.